Oh, man, that's awesome. I love the princess there. Did anybody recognize the princess? She was in this room up here before me. Where's she at? Oh, she's, she's gone. Hey, if you haven't been a part of VBS, I, I encourage you to, um, to get plugged in. It is a wonderful time where we get to pour into the kids. And actually, I, I remember as a volunteer, I would end up being filled up myself and encouraged just as a result of seeing these kids taking one step closer. So I encourage you, if you have a kid, sign them up. If you want to volunteer, go sign up for that as well. It's going to be a good, good, um, good, good night, a good week of uh, fun, okay? A couple things more before I get started. First of all, my name is Tito. I'm the associate pastor here. And I'm also a student director as well, so if you have any students, send them my way. We'll get them plugged in. Um, anybody who went to the Apricot Fiesta and served at one of our booths, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. We had the Slush Puppies booth, and we had Dippin' Dots, and those lines were nonstop. I talked to one of my brothers, Michael, out here, and he says, Tito, that line did not stop for about six hours. And I'm like, dude, thank you, thank you, thank you. So as a result of being there, we're hoping that we could end up fundraising for our students to, be in, to go to winter camp and summer camp at Hume Lake. And so just as an example, last time we did this at the last Apricot Fiesta, our students and our church, because we all help, were able to earn up to $4,400. And so that money went directly to the students to get them to camp so they can have that fun because it's not a cheap thing. And so we want to make it as fun as possible and as easy as possible for our families, okay? If you came today prepared to give, thank you. We have drop boxes off at the exits. You can also open up your app and give online or through the website, or you can even drop it in snail mail. We can get it that way as well. Guys, thank you for your generosity. It's the only way that we are able to do what we do, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week as well. And if this is your first time, I promise you, this is not what it's about. We're just glad that you're here. We just want you to enjoy yourself and just maybe something that God could speak to you today, okay? So thank you for being here. Okay, And if you're a guest and this is your first time, we have a starting point out there where we have some mugs and some cups out there. It's a free gift that we want to offer you as a thank you for coming here. There's also information about our midweek kind of activities, our weekend services. Um, we even have a cool sticker out there I just got uh, made up for our students that are really neat. Go ahead and grab one on your way out, okay? We're just glad that you're here. Okay, And if this is your first time here and you're looking for a church home, we want to say... Welcome home. Thank you. All right. Okay, so before I get started, I'm going to ask that you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be uh, 42 and 50. To Go ahead and find your spot, mark it, and we're going to come back to it in a moment, okay? So we are wrapping up our series, Messy Faith. And it's been a very, very, very good series. I mean, we've looked at identity. We've looked at our imperfections. We've also looked at doubt and failure and how that seeps into our, our lives. And last week, we talked about stress and how it shifts our attention from God's faithfulness, his provision, and his direction. And we're learning that our faith is not this linear, straight line to becoming more like Jesus. In fact, it weaves and goes up and down. I mean, it's, it's messy. But see, he meets us in our messiness to talk with us and to invite us into this wonderful journey of trust and transparency with him. It's an invitation. See, we can learn to come to him about everything, especially in the mess of our sin. We're going to be talking about the messiness of sin today. See, in our culture today, sin, it finds itself mostly on dessert menus. 
I'm telling you, there's actually a website that's called SinfulDesserts.com. And P.F. Chang's has this dessert called the Great Wall of Chocolate that's over 1,700 calories per slice. I mean, I don't know why I looked it up, but I did on a nutritional guide. And it said that it would take over three hours of running or over four hours of cycling or over eight hours of walking just to burn that off. That's crazy. I mean, I like the treadmill for like 20 minutes and I'm done, you know? <laughs> See, dessert is sinful. But all too often in our culture, lying isn't. Gossip isn't. Or treating people with contempt. The new measure for sin is how many calories or grams of fat it has, of which, I'm telling you, at the moment of that great wall of chocolate, we are not thinking about all those calories. We are indulging, right? We don't care about all that at the time. So here's the thing. The idea most people have about sin is that it's probably something that you just shouldn't do, right? But, but, it sure would be great if we can get away with it. Sadly, that's the view of sin. See, sin gets portrayed as not a really big deal. And as long as it's not any of the real bad ones like murder or rape or adultery or whatever, it's okay. And I know people don't like to talk about sin very much. And believe me, believe me, it's hard here to stand before you to talk about sin. It's difficult. See, it's challenging and it's uncomfortable. But if we're willing to dig in, to dive into the missingness of our faith, we have to look at our sin. We have to. It's incomplete if we don't. And I know that some of the messy faith we experience is through struggles and doubts and insecurities and just imperfections of just being human. But sometimes the mess that's caused is a result of our own sin. It's a result of what we're doing in our own sin. And I know that some of the messy faith is tough. But I want you to know that, by the way, as a pastor, I'm not immune to this. This is my story, too. This is something that we're all walking through. It's a hard thing to look at since more and more in our culture we want to blame others or justify our actions or just shift responsibility, right? Now, now look at what Jesus says here in Mark, but before I read these words, I want you to understand something in this. See, these words were spoken to his friends. They weren't spoken out of anger or out of spite. They were spoken out of love. They were his friends, Okay? And I believe that these words are very real. They're a very real, no-holds-barred description about the way things are. Read with me in Mark 9, starting at verse 42. It says, But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning. But if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. It's a heavy one. But I'm going to tell you what my goal is for today, for all of us. And this comes straight from Jesus' words. Is that we would come to hate sin and to fear it and to despise it. To hate it in a way that an alcoholic hates alcoholism. To hate it in a way that a victim, a, a victim of abuse hates violence. To hate it in a way that a cancer patient hates cancer. Not because we're these super spiritual people who would never, ever dream of committing it, but because we come to see it for what it is. That it's more than just messy. Sin is destructive and it's damaging. It's more than just a mess. And when we really see sin for what it is, we actually see that God loves us. And no matter what we've done or wherever we've been, he's there with us, despite that. And we said over and over in the series that God doesn't ask us to get ourselves all cleaned up and spiritually perfect and then come to him. That's not what he's asking. See, he meets us in our mess. He meets us in our sin and invites us into something better, something more. So we need to have a clear view of Jesus and the life that he brings. And I believe that when we come to see this life in the kingdom of God and recognize it is the good news, the best news ever, that we would be crazy and insane not to give up everything to grab onto it. It's the best news ever. And when we come to that point, it won't even be a matter of following the rules anymore. It's going to be simply our desire to follow after Jesus. It's our desire. So we need a clear view of what God desires, and then we can come to understand sin and what it does. Write this down for point one. Jesus wants me to know life as it's supposed to be. He wants us to know life as it's supposed to be. Back in the 90s, there was a movie that I loved watching. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called Grand Canyon. And one of my favorite actors, Danny Glover, is in it, and he plays this tow truck driver. And in one of the scenes, there's this interaction. And so uh, there's this guy who's he's, uh, he's broke down in this inner city, like East Los Angeles neighborhood. He's in the hood, okay? He's calling for a tow truck driver. He obviously sticks out. He doesn't belong there. And so as he's waiting for the tow truck driver to come, on the opposite way of traffic, a car comes full of guys and it makes a U-turn and parks behind him, right? And they're going to come and attempt to carjack this guy and take his stuff from him. And so they come out of the car and they're having this interaction of like, hey, give me your car or whatever. And then the tow truck driver pulls up, Danny Glover. And the scene shows he opens the door and he pulls out this crowbar and he says, hey, which one of you men called for a tow truck? And the guy's like, I did, I did. I need help right here. And the other guy, the gang leader, steps up and says, yo, 
you're messing up what we're trying to do. And he started getting in the way of Danny Glover doing his job. And they had this interaction that I'll never forget. And I want to share it with you. And it goes like this in the scene. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I don't know about you all, but all you have to do is open up the newspaper, turn the TV on. I don't know. Social. How many have you said and heard something that said, this is not how it's supposed to be? It's wrong. It's not how it's supposed to be. You see, the world we're living in, it's not the way it's supposed to be. See, God intended one thing, and sin distorted and defiled all of that. His original gift was one thing, but sin just it, it tore it up, it defiled it. So I want you to think for a moment with me what a world would look like if it were the way it's supposed to be. There would be no locks on doors, no lie detectors, no lawsuits, no prisons. When your friend gets promoted or gets a car, you would actually be happy for them without being jealous as if it were you getting it. When you go to sleep at night, there'd be no regrets, nothing hidden, no shame, no knots in your stomach. Think for a moment about what social media would be like. It would be about friendship, encouragement, and truth. News feeds would be filled with stories about courage and honesty and beauty and truth. And at the end of the day, people would gather and read these stories and they would tell each other about them. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophets are the messengers from God. <coughs> they used to think about what the world would look like. And they would try to describe this with metaphors and, and different ways of communicating this using some of this descriptive language. I want to share it with you, okay? So listen. In Isaiah 35, 1 through 8, listen to this. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom. The desert will become as green as mountains of Lebanon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God, with this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to save you. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will, will, and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. And a great road will go through the once deserted land. It will be named the highway of holiness. That's a movie scene almost. That's real. You see, this was not just to convey information. This was not just to give them something to just know. But it was to create inside of people a kind of desire to live in a world of joy and peace just like that. That's what it was intended for. To give us this yearning, this desire to be different. 
Listen to this. This is why King David wrote stuff like this. Psalms 34, 8. I love this one. One of my favorites. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. I don't know about you, but I love to taste what I'm going to eat before I eat it. I'm not the only one. It's an invitation. See what's, see, just check it out. It's not forced. It's a choice. Taste and see for yourself. See, those who read David's words were stirred by them. And they would think, I really do want all that God offers. You know what? As a matter of fact, I want it more than I even knew I wanted it. When we come to that point, when we taste and see his goodness, that's where we land. We see what we're missing and we go after it. Now, the word to describe all of that in the Old Testament is this word, shalom. Now, it's usually translated as peace, but it means much more than just a lack of conflict. It's not just people not fighting. See, it's a word that describes what it would be like in this world if people lived in peace and joy with themselves and with all of creation and with God. And over all of this, God would reign with justice and peace and love. That's how it would be. Now contrast that with my sin. With the mess of choosing my way, my desires, my wants and needs over God's ways, my selfishness and hurt and insecurities and wounds distort and disfigure what God's desire is. Let's say that one more time. My selfishness and hurt and insecurities and wounds distort and disfigure what God desires. See, we've got to understand that this is God's desire and God's plan. And when you begin to see what God really wants for you and what his plan and his heart beats for, I think only then do we really start understanding the sin thing. See, we have to see it on the other side. We have to see the fullness of it all. God wants the best for us. And sin damages and creates a mess of the best. God wants the best for us. And sin damages and creates a mess of the best. Remember that. Put this down for point two. Jesus wants me to know the destruction sin brings. Let's talk about sin for a minute. Some of the definitions. One of the definitions is missing the mark. Imagine an archer shooting the arrow towards a target, and he completely misses the target. It's like, it's like a point guard throwing up a three, and he throws an air ball, completely missing the mark. Second one is this, the choice that defiles the way things are supposed to be. That's sin. And this one right here, breaking relationships with God and other people. That's the result of sin. And we need to start thinking of sin in this way, bottom line. Not simply as a set of rules that are supposed to be followed. One of the images used for sin is that it's like a cancer in which that it kills and it reproduces. It grows. That's sin. See, C.S. Lewis wrote this about sin. I love this quote. It says, sin promises more and more, and gives less and less. Until ultimately, it promises everything and gives what? Nothing. That's sin. Think about that. 
Nothing. Sin promises what? Security, pleasure, fulfillment, hope, control, power, sense of worth. But what does it deliver? False hope, emptiness, fleeting pleasure, insecurities. Sin offers us the hint of what we're really after, but it gives us phony knockoffs of what we hope to get next. Sin is a phony knockoff of God's best, bottom line. And when we look back at Mark 9, Jesus comes to talk about sin, and he's deadly serious. He's serious. Look with me at Mark 9, verse 42. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. It's pretty heavy. First, he talks about if you cause somebody else to sin. Now, Jesus knows that sin is like a domino effect. It doesn't just affect one. It, it affects everybody. That's what sin does. It tips over and over and over. And he says this, knowing that. He says, okay, I'm going to give you two options. Because God gives us options, I suppose, right? Option number one is this. Go find a millstone. Does anybody know what a millstone is? Right. A millstone is this big stone wheel with a hole in it where an axle goes in and it's rolling on top of a flat surface like this to, to crush grain. And there's a wooden axle that goes in it so it spins all the way around. So Jesus is saying, grab that millstone, pick it up, put it over your neck like a collar, and jump in. I don't know if the odds of surviving are good doing that. That's one option. Option number two is this. To cause somebody else to sin. Go ahead and influence them and entice them. That's option number two. You got those scenarios in your mind? You got it? See, if you, had a, if you have a choice between those two, Jesus says every time, get the millstone. He says, get the millstone. What does that say about the seriousness of causing or influencing other people to sin? It's pretty serious. Then in verse 43, he starts talking about our steps into sin. But first, before I jump over there, I want to go to Matthew 5, okay? Because I believe that this teaching right here, it will lead us into this fact that sin, sin is a very subtle thing. It just sneaks in. It's subtle. And it really, it's deeper than just my outward actions, the things that I do. Sin is not just the things that, it's deeper than that. So number three is this, write this down. Sin is more than just my actions. Sin, as Jesus is talking about it here, it's not just a series of actions that you might be able to avoid or rules to follow. See, it goes much deeper than that. My sin digs into the way I think and I see and I feel and I live, and it contaminates and messes up my very soul. That's what sin does. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus gets to the root of sin. He says this, You have heard that the law of Moses says, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eye has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus is teaching about adultery. He says that the religious elite tend to think about sin in terms of external, you know, behaviors and rules. So that when it comes to adultery, they can put people in two different categories. You got the people that are actually physically committing the sin and they are sinners 
And then the other category would be the people who have never committed adultery, like the religious elite, and that they are sin-free, at least in this area. Or so they think. You see, the religious crowd did not hate sin. They only hated certain sins. And they wanted to stay away from them, but they loved, loved, loved being able to judge others. See, what they hated about Jesus was that the challenge, what they hated about Jesus was that he challenged the sin in them, not just the acts that they hadn't committed. He was calling them out. He was, he was pointing out something deeper to them. And before you say, yeah, 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 we hate those Pharisees, you've got to understand this. We're no different. We do the same thing. We generally rate sin, too, and hate some sin more than others, especially the sin of someone else, but not on our own, right? So Jesus says, you have heard that the law of Moses says, do not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eye has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus' point here is not that lust is as bad as adultery. That's not the point in this. See, adultery, the physical act of it, can do much deeper kinds of damage involving other people and so on. But his point is that if you think that because you haven't committed adultery, that you're free from any sexual sin and now can smugly look down at other people because you're so moral, you got another thing coming. That is not the case. Think again. Because guess what? There are deeper sin issues in you. Deeper. Because it's a matter of the heart. What's going on inside. So let me bounce back to Mark 9, where Jesus is teaching about this and is actually using some humor here. See, he's taken the Pharisees' approach out to its logical extreme. Mark 9, 43 to 47. It says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter, into, enter, it's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. He's saying that if it's all external, and it's just the acts of sin that are bad and make our faith messy. If that's all it is, well, then it's easy. If it's your eye that causes you to sin, and you really hate sin as much as you claim to hate it, then by all means, go right ahead. Rip out your eye. That's what he's saying. If your hand is, if your hand is what leads you to sin, then by all means, cut off your hand. This is crazy things that he's saying. Imagine being his friends, the disciples, that are sitting there listening to this, probably the same way we are right now, going, what? They're probably hiding their hands, I, I would imagine. <laughs> what does Jesus, what does he say? What does he mean? They're probably talking amongst each other. Cut off her hands? And then it hits. Oh. Hold on, Jesus, this is deeper than just cutting my hand. This is, isn't it? This is in me. Oh, it's about my heart. It's a heart issue. <sighs> Jesus, this is serious, isn't it? Can you imagine that moment with him? Finally getting it? 
And it wasn't about the acts that Jesus is focusing on. He's talking about the heart. And what does Jesus want the most out of all of us? It's the heart that he wants. He wants to give us a renewing of the heart, to bring us a freshness of life, to instill this hope that we have in him. Sin distorts it and just gets in the way. That's why he's trying to show how important this is. The invitation to be set free from sin is not just a call to avoid certain behaviors. It's an invitation to become a new person, to be washed clean from the inside out. Oh, man. To be washed clean from the inside out. Brings me to point four. Jesus invites me to come clean and come home. So here's a question. Are you ready to draw a line in the sand? No more justifying or avoiding. Where you say, I'm going to be honest about my sin, and that is destructive and damaging to my very soul. I want to, as much as I can, respond in such a way that it brings things closer to how God intended them to be. I know life is messy, and my faith is imperfect and messy, but I'm choosing to come clean and choose Jesus rather than the mess of my sin. Sin is chasing what only God can provide, and I want that. That's the declaration we need to make. Paul says this in Romans 6, 11. He says, so you should consider yourselves dead to sin and be able to live for the glory of God through Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I want you to begin thinking about yourselves in this way. Consider yourselves or think of yourselves as being dead to sin. And that simply means that you are not going to respond to it, that you are dead to it. You're not going to respond to it. Now, faith will be messy. And the truth is, our faith journey will be messy our whole life here on earth. It will be. But we keep taking one step closer to Jesus every day. Every minute sometimes we have to do that. One step closer. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. It's beautiful. We have our game plan. We have it right there before us, what we need to do. See, Jesus is inviting you to come clean and to come home to him. That's the invitation this morning. To set you free from sin and to bring you back to what God intended life to be for you. That's what he wants for you. The way to this new life was made through Jesus and the selfless act of love that he did on the cross for us. He paid for the mess of my sin once and for all and made a way for me to truly come clean and to come home. And that's what we're going to do this morning. To remember the sacrifice that Jesus did as we take communion as a family. So please, get your elements ready. And we're going to take communion as a family. And it's in this sacrifice that we are made whole. That we don't have to live in the mess of our sin. That we can come and talk to him.
So on a night of Jesus' betrayal. And just so you know, that communion here, it's, it's not a ritual or a ceremony. What it is, it's something for us to do as a family to remember together collectively the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. On that night of Christ's betrayal, he sat in a room with his friends and was having dinner and had the regular ingredients out, bread and wine and other things. But then he takes his piece of bread and he breaks it. And he starts passing it out to his friends one by one. And they take a piece of the bread and they probably don't know what's going on. And he holds his up and he says, this bread is a symbol of my body broken for you. My sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your sacrifice, Lord. Thank you for going to the cross, Lord, for our sins and for restoring this hope in us, Lord Jesus. Will you eat the bread with me, please? And then after dinner, they pulled out the wine and Jesus fills up his cup. And after he fills it up, he passes his cup to his friends. And he tells his friends to take a drink out of it. And he tells them that this wine is symbolic of the blood that is shed for them and for their sins. For our hope in Christ. Please drink this with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice of the cross. Thank you for church family that we can slow down and pause and focus for a minute on your goodness, on your love, on your faithfulness, that regardless of what's going on, we can come to you, Jesus. See, at our church, we have people and resources that we offer our church family. For those of us that are walking through certain circumstances of hurt, some habits or just anything, on Mondays, we have our Celebrate Recovery that meets at a, it's a safe place where people come and just are raw with each other. Services are great. As a result of that, we also offer 12-step classes with Celebrate Recovery. It's a safe place to land in a non-judgment area to where you can just talk and be real about what's going on in your life. We also offer uh, counseling services. We have Marilyn, who is at the Turlock campus there, who is readily available for free to talk to anybody walking through whatever they're going through. Pastor Jeremy and I would love, love, love to sit down with all of you individually and talk, get to know you, for you to get to know us. Because remember, we're not immune to this either. This is our story too, and we need you. And if you haven't made that decision... To take Christ into your heart, I want to do that today with you. And we're not going to do it right here corporately. But I want to have a prayer time with you. We're going to have Carl over here at the prayer corner over there. And Courtney will be over there as well. And if you want to make this commitment to taking one step closer to Jesus, to deny the faith, I'm sorry, to deny the sin so that your faith can grow and you can take one step closer to Jesus, today is the day. What are you waiting for? Remember, it's the best news what are you waiting for? Grab it and take it. 
That's what we want for you today, okay? Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much, Jesus, for just today and this church family, God. I thank you for this moment that we can just reflect on you and your goodness, Lord. Lord, I just pray a blessing over everyone right now, God, who is walking through tough times, Lord. Maybe it has some things going on, Lord, or some of the sin that just needs to just, Lord, maybe you can take it away. But I know that requires us to understand your plan and your ways, Lord. So, Lord, do your thing with us. Help us to bring us back to the way it's supposed to be. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you so much, so much for being here today. I can't wait to see you next week, okay? Have a wonderful day.